0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. Have we done another year, Halligan? Have we scraped through to Christmas? Good grief. Four.
1: It's not completely mad that, you know, a not particularly well-known backbencher could become Prime Minister. Three. It's quite embarrassing,
2: really, to be in a position where you rely on your opposition in order to pass votes.
0: Any, any thoughts on the next James Bond?
1: I'm not available. I'm not available. <laughs> One. We have lift off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, if Boris Johnson thought he was going to get a gentle wind down ahead of the festive period, his plans have clearly been upended. The North Shropshire by-election, which saw the Lib Dems overturn a 22,000-strong Tory majority, came off the back of a series of scandals involving Whitehall parties, Downing Street wallpaper and a huge Tory rebellion against the latest anti-Covid restrictions. The Prime Minister's decided, though, under the watchful eye of Tory backbenchers and some cabinet ministers, not to impose further restrictions ahead of Christmas in England, Yet alarmingly, despite emerging evidence that Omicron causes far fewer hospitalisations and severe symptoms than the previously dominant Delta variants, there are rumours swirling of renewed restrictions after the festive period. Warnings abound that schools and universities may not reopen after the Christmas break. This is the festive period, Alison, and here on Planet Normal, we're determined, aren't we, to get into the Christmas spirit. But even in the absence of pre-Christmas restrictions, while Rudolph and Santa will soon be soaring across the starry sky, it'll be against a backdrop of the looming clouds of possible lockdown.
0: Do you want some sound effects?
1: Go on. We've had those already. Is that the best you can do? <laughs>
0: I've got a glass of Baileys. Does that count? (laughs) I'll be chinking that. Oh, my goodness. Have we done another
1: year, Halligan? Have we scraped through to Christmas? Good grief. This is the 81st episode of Planet Normal. Believe it or not, they said we couldn't survive and we survived.
0: We certainly did. I'll tell you one thing that's happening now, which is that I think that that governments don't fall apart in anger. I think it's when the mockery starts and there's an awful lot of mockery around. So I've just been sent this. I'll read it to you. I've just heard that the police will now have powers to remove relatives from your home on Christmas Day. Does anyone know if this is a free service or do you have to book in advance?
1: (laughs) I mean, we've had Anton Deck mocking the prime minister. I mean, a, a darts championship the other day, a bunch of mm. finely honed athletes in the audience were stand up <laughs> if you hate Boris with their dimpled glasses. I mean, this is not good. These are meant to be the people who elected Boris Johnson.
0: That's exactly right. And I do think when the sarcasm kicks in, you, I, I'm quite cheered by it, Halligan, honestly. I think, you know, the Brits have got their got their humour back we've got lots of stuff about new year's eve i'll be having a business meeting with my sister and her family wine and cheese someone was on a flight to belfast and said that he'd be having a a wine and cheese business meeting and got basically a standing ovation from the plane oddly enough that's when it cuts through before we come to the bad news i think there were four things that have moved the dial as far as planet normal listeners are concerned this week as you said 100 Tory MPs rebelled against vaccine passports, which dealt the government a sort of slap around the chops. We had that astonishing Tory trouncing in North Shropshire. I personally wasn't at all surprised by that, Liam. I think I've said many times on the podcast that my inbox is full of people who are cutting up their Tory membership cards. I personally think if there was a general election tomorrow that many, many formerly safe Tory seats would fall. On
1: very low turnout, I'd say, on very low turnout, with lots of Tories staying away
0: lots of Tories staying at home. I don't think in North Shropshire, if you looked at the numbers, it wasn't so much Tories voting for the Lib Dem candidate. It was Labour switching to the Lib Dem candidate and Tories being disgusted and staying at home. There was also this hugely significant resignation of Lord Frost, David Frost from the cabinet, this formidable Brexit negotiator, one of Boris's great allies in the cabinet. Well, we'll talk about a a bit later. I'm sure you'll have some good insights into that co-pilot, but he certainly announced that he wasn't happy with plan B. He wasn't happy at all with the coronavirus restrictions. So this was a great march. You remember, Liam, that Boris had that a very affectionate describing, David Frost as the greatest Frost since the Great Frost of 1709. So he's lost this terrifically effective figure in a not particularly strong cabinet. And one Point which might seem quite minor, but which I think Liam may turn out to have been very, very significant was Fraser Nelson, the excellent editor of The Spectator. He became involved in a conversation on Twitter with Professor Graham Medley, who's the chairman of SAGE. And Fraser just rather politely asked Professor Medley, whether Sage, which was coming up with all these very, very worst case scenarios about Omicron, Fraser said, well, there have been other people who think that Omicron is milder and you haven't included that in your mathematical model. And then Graham Medley said this quite extraordinary thing is he said, we only model what we're asked to model. And he said, we'd only model things where ministers need to make decisions. And the implication, which obviously Fraser Nelson was duly incredulous about, was that you don't need to make a decision about whether not to take any drastic action. And I think the penny's dropping, Liam, within the cabinet, not just because David Frost has walked out, but also because I think a lot of cabinet members like Jacob Rees-Mogg have become familiar with that admission from the chair of SAGE that essentially they're Pumping out. What is it they say? Politics-based evidence, not evidence-based politics, (laughs) which is a brilliant phrase, isn't it? And I think that Rhys Mogg said at this, you know, there's this cabinet meeting where I slightly suspect that Boris was expecting to wave through the restriction, new restrictions on the back of this very, very gloomy forecast from Sage. But suddenly the cabinet has jolted into life and has started saying, hang on a minute. Is this evidence reliable? So it's a really, I think that may have seen off Christmas restrictions. What was your perception, co-pilot?
1: I think that's right. Graham Medley actually heads up the SPY-M, which is the sort of modelling part of SAGE. So he's really one of the very technical people. And Fraser asked him characteristically polite, but very acute questions publicly, On Twitter, what I saw as I was watching this conversation roll out in real time, I understand Fraser was writing his Christmas cards at the time, and I was doing the same, (laughs) is I thought the first stirrings of a bit of buck passing by SAGE back towards Mm. ministers and civil servants. Look, we're only modelling what we're asked to model. I think there are a few tactical mistakes by Graham Medley, a failure to acknowledge that not imposing any restrictions Is a decision. It's a massive decision for a politician to make, especially when you've got assorted scientists very publicly. Many of these SAGE members seem to have their own press briefing operations Ah. and their own sort of media handlers. When they're briefing to the press, we're telling ministers this and they're not doing certain things. It's their fault if everything goes wrong. Of course, for The cabinet to say no new restrictions is an enormous decision. And for Graham Medley to infer on Twitter that that isn't a decision the way he did, I thought, was particularly clumsy and politically naive, almost disrespectful of the political process, I thought. And you're right. Parts of the cabinet are suddenly kicking into gear. And I think what we've seen across government, particularly in number 10, Alison, is a huge amount of just intellectual laziness. The likes of you and I, we don't have secretariats and civil services. You know, it's we've got a laptop and a modem and a lot of stuff to do each week to be the regular journalist that we are. And we've taught ourselves a lot of science and we've really got into the numbers and you in particular have done a huge amount to extract from the NHS a lot of information which ministers could get with a click of their fingers and we've come to the conclusion that a lot of these restrictions particularly when it comes to Omicron based on the current evidence are way over the top there isn't enough of a trade-off being made between what certain scientists say and of course there are huge rows within science look at the Great Barrington Declaration people Shinetra Gupta, John Yenides, Jay Bhattacharya. Martin Koldorf, some of the world's top epidemiologists that completely disagree with lockdown. They formed a research body called Collateral, which is all about the damage that lockdown does on balance compared to not having a lockdown. So there's no science. There's no the science. There's lots of scientific inquiry and SAGE represents just one part of it. But I think what we're seeing now finally from members of the cabinet is an urgency to push the prime minister to consider also the downsides of lockdown rather than just following what certain scientists are saying in order to cover their backsides in any forthcoming public inquiry.
0: I think that's right. But I think that as far as the cabinet is concerned, there just is the science that these people are giving them what they presumably think are the correct data. And I rather rejoiced in that Graham Medley moment because I think it confirmed co-pilot, what we've been saying on planet normal now for you know, over 20 months, which is that these men, and they are mainly men of a certain sort, quite spectrum type of males with very little perspective on the sort of more emotional, psychological damage being done by the policies which arise from the material they are providing. And, and one of the really, you know, very provoking things that Graham Medley sort of semi-said really was, Well, you know, presumably someone else is modelling the mental health problems and the children developing Tourette's and the speech delay in toddlers. Presumably someone else is modelling that. Oh, no, they're not. So I think it was inadvertently an extremely damaging admission. But we've had Boris perhaps slightly on the back foot with all those setbacks we discussed at the top, you know, looking very, very one-faced and tired and saying, we reserve the possibility of taking further action. So something I was told, Liam, by quite a senior source in the supply chain for food and supermarkets is that on Monday, when Boris was standing up there saying, we reserve the possibility of taking further action, Sainsbury's and Asda got emails from the government saying, prepare for lockdown on the 28th. So Boris can say in all conscience, we're not going to close down Christmas, but we are... It looks to me like they're going to shut down New Year. And as we're recording, Liam, my own uh, native principality of Wales has banned New Year's Eve celebrations and will return to the rule of six from Boxing Day in pubs and restaurants. And Mark Drakeford outdoing even the draconian little bism, Nicholas Sturgeon. So this is a familiar pattern, Liam, isn't it? Is the smaller countries, Scotland and Wales, vying for the most draconian restrictions and then Boris probably having to seed something. And if you want my hunch, Halligan, it would be that Boris has defied Chris Whitty and Sage and said, I'm not giving you Christmas, but as a consolation prize, you can have the new year taken away from them. And I think it's disgraceful. I think it's absolutely disgraceful.
1: I also think it's worth saying that the resignation of David Frost was a really dangerous moment for the prime minister. And it is a really dangerous moment because David Frost represents somebody who is very much part of getting Brexit done. It was the combination of Frost and Boris Johnson after that famous December 2019 election victory that really got Brexit over the line. And Frost, of course, has been grappling with, in my view, massive EU intransigence and troublemaking and really irresponsible messing with the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. And he's left.
0: Is that part of it? I mean, I know he cited being uncomfortable with the coronavirus restrictions, but do you think the Northern Ireland Agreement is part of it?
1: I do. I think Boris is sick and tired of the EU digging his heels in. And I think he is up now for conceding that the European Court of Justice will continue to have jurisdiction in Northern Ireland, which I think is completely mad because it's based on a hoax. It's a hoax, the idea that you have to have Physical infrastructure across the border of the island of Ireland, which of course would be politically contentious and even spark sectarian violence. You don't need physical infrastructure across the border of the island of Ireland. That border is thankfully invisible now. It's already a currency, a duty, a tax border, and it could easily be an export border with so-called alternative arrangements derogations for smaller firms trusted trader schemes and all the rest of it and countless independent studies including studies commissioned by the European parliament itself has shown that to be true so i think boris is basically caving in frost doesn't want to cave in he's right not to cave in he's also concerned about the direction of government and he's gone. And that really is a red rag to a bull when it comes to those Tory backbenchers who really do now hold the balance of power. I mean, let's just think this through, Alison. Those 100 Tory rebels, the European Research Group, the COVID Recovery Group, there's obviously some overlap between those two, but they will decide if there's a Tory leadership contest, who gets on the ballot. The Tory parliamentary party votes to put two candidates forward for the leadership and then the Tory party as a whole across the country gets to vote and those ERGers those Covid recovery group people on the backbenches they will make sure a very Brexity person gets on the ballot and then in my view that Brexity person will be voted for by the Tory rank and file so it's not completely mad that you know a not particularly well-known backbencher could become prime minister if those Tory backbenchers really feel riled by the Prime Minister's behaviour and if they feel that he's taking his eye off the ball when it comes to making sure that Brexit is secure.
0: I think it could be well someone who comes from what's happens in rugby. Liam, you play rugby, don't you? It's from it's the sort of when the ball comes loose, isn't it? At the it? back of
1: the scrum. <laughs> back
0: of the scrum.
1: <laughs> Which, of course, was the image that Boris once used to admit that he would quite like to be the Tory leader. You know, if the Mm. ball comes loose at the back of the scrum, I'll pick it up and have a go and all the rest of it.
0: I think that the overall picture for me as we go into Christmas, you know at Pearson Towers we're having a COVID swear box. This has been dictated (laughs) by my best beloved. Anyone who mentions the dreaded virus has to put 50p in the jar. And I'm going to be honest here, Liam, I think Anthony's doing it because he wants to avoid me giving everyone my 15-minute Planet Normal <laughs> lecture about <laughs>
1: variants. Is Really? Is that what you think? You've never mentioned it
0: before? <laughs> Have I never bored you with my in-depth knowledge of the hospital bed occupancy? You've
1: talked to me a lot about the recent prize that you won, the Wallace and Gromit Cheese writing award or whatever it was. The
0: Edgar Wallace Prize for fine writing. (laughs) But just to say, I think we are at this junction now. We've talked about this before. Who rules Britain? Is it these scientists? Because do you remember the Plan B press conference when Boris was basically saying, yes, you work from home if you possibly can and wear some masks on public transport? It was Chris Whitty who really put the frighteners on people by saying it's very bad indeed. And from that moment on, hospitality has just gone into a tailspin. We've seen Rishi Sunak, haven't we, this week, Liam, coming up with you know another package for business which doesn't look as though it'll even begin to cover the cost of businesses who are relying on these two or three weeks, aren't they, to make up all the business they've lost. And God knows if they're going to try and cancel New Year... Next week, I mean, I think it's going to be an absolute gunfight at the OK Corral in the Commons. Just this, this point, Liam, about is it the scientists, is it Chris Whitty in charge or is it democratically elected politicians? And the thing that I mean, I was writing about in the column this week, the data is not there to support a Plan C. It simply isn't. It is just the scientist whispering in Boris's ear and also the opposition saying, we need a roadmap to more restrictions. We absolutely do not need more restrictions and it just isn't there. We
1: don't like roadmaps, do we? (laughs) We don't.
0: We don't 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 like like roadmaps.
1: Roadmaps means bad things are going to happen.
0: Yes, they do. Well, what do you think? What do you think? If my source is correct, and Parliament is recalled on the 27th to shut down things from the 28th. What on earth is going to be the reaction? I mean, I think we're going to have, apart from anything else in the country, I think we could see mass non-compliance. I think people are just going to be rolling in an absolute major national eye roll. But there's going to be blood on the floor in the Commons, isn't there?
1: I think a lot of it depends on this evidence from South Africa, Obviously, there are differences between South Africa and the UK, but South Africa is, quote, ahead of us when it comes to this variant. And if we can see hospitalizations in South Africa continuing to remain relatively flat compared to the Delta variant, if we continue to see relatively benign symptoms of Omicron, if we continue to see deaths with Omicron as opposed to deaths of Omicron, which is, of course, very, very different, then I think a lot of the public will be minded to take these any new restrictions with a pinch of salt. And Chris Whitty himself has acknowledged that it's going to be difficult to take the public with you if you're a government minister or a prime minister looking for new restrictions. And you mentioned that Rishi Sunak one billion pound package, Alison. It's not even going to touch the side. A six grand handout for a company that's been absolutely walloped because December's been written off by scientists saying spooky things on, on the Tea Time news. Business leaders I've spoken to, I'm talking about people that run small, medium sized enterprises around the country, they're insulted that that is some kind of response to the fact that their businesses are being completely ruined by this. And we've just had a growth number out. The UK grew by just 1.1% during the third quarter. That's July, August, September. And in October, the preliminary data shows just 0.1% growth. There's no way that the UK economy is going to grow as Rishi Sunak said it would in the budget back in October by 6.5% this year and 6% next year. No way is that going to happen. And when that doesn't happen, there's going to be less tax revenue around. It's going to be a lot harder to hit those spending pledges that the Tories have laid out. And politics, guess what, is going to get even more complicated because growth has stalled.
0: We are coming towards the end of the year, Liam. You know, for me, is how quickly have we lost sight of our rights to have freedoms. The restrictions they're talking about, even the ones that apply now, they should only be imposed in a state of emergency. We are not in a state of emergency. I know several people who have got presumably COVID, but the Omicron variant of COVID, they have got a sore throat, Liam. You know, there's something going around. Remember the good old days when people used to say, oh, there's something going around, bit of a nasty virus that's where we are now. So we're just going to have a bit of one of our favourite slots on Planet Normal now, and we're going to just check in with George. Can you remind the listeners who George is, Liam?
1: George is a senior source within NHS England. He or she has full access to the internal data. We don't disclose his or her identity, but we're confident of the authenticity of George's stats, which is why we report them, even though we can't independently verify them, because by definition, they're not yet published and they may not be published at all.
0: And George says the hospitals all submitted plans anyway within the last month based on the fact that COVID occupancy would rise. So on Monday of this week, there were 6,650 COVID inpatients, which does represent a slight increase, but not much more than what we would expect on a Monday we are still a thousand patients fewer than the most recent peak of occupied COVID beds, which was 7,526 on the 1st of November. Currently, Liam, there are still just 5%. Only 5% of hospital beds are occupied by a COVID patient, with 11% of beds unoccupied. Now, George says the overall occupancy currently stands at 89%, which would normally be considered pretty good for the NHS at this time of the year. George says they must have either freed up some beds or discharged some more patients because unoccupied beds are about double what they were this time last week. So it's a pretty healthy situation. Admissions with COVID have been declining for the past week. If you look at the seven day rolling average, inpatients diagnosed with COVID are increasing slightly. But this also corresponds to an increase in infections confirmed in patients who have been in hospital more than eight days. Now, this is my favourite word, Halligan. What's my favourite word for infections in hospital?
1: Nosocomial.
0: (laughs) Nosocomial. The rate of nosocomial infection in London has increased dramatically over the past few weeks and is higher now than it has ever been. The official rate, says George, stands at 15%, which is already quite high, but due to some mathematical sleight of hand, who who in the NHS could possibly be guilty of mathematical sleight of hand? That figure is lower than it actually should be. Now, this is astonishing, Halligan. In the last week in London, one in five patients diagnosed with COVID after admission had acquired COVID in the hospital. So there we are. And staff absences, George says, certainly flagging up as an issue. And you'll notice, Liam, also this week that they've just reduced the isolation period from 10 days to seven days, long overdue change. And that is partly to do, I'm sure, and George confirms, with the fact that the NHS is experiencing staffing shortages. And finally... ICU bed occupancy—that's the emergency units by COVID patients—is down slightly over the last few days. And George's parting shot to Planet Normal: I can't see anything in the data which indicates an impending apocalypse. You know, I do love George. And and before we move on, co-pilot. Let's just speak for all of the listeners, I think, when we thank George for putting all the figures we see on the news bandied about, putting them into a sane uh, and responsible context. So thank you, George. Happy Christmas and Happy New Year to George from all of us.
3: It begins with a miracle treatment.
1: These treatments were seen as a wonder drug to benefit all of us.
3: Young lives injected with hope.
1: This is going to transform your life.
3: But the treatment's tainted. It contains a fatal poison.
1: I came down with a,
4: an illness where I basically passed out at work.
3: And it starts to infect the very people it's meant to help.
4: And then the damage began.
3: Damage so far-reaching, it becomes one of the biggest medical disasters in history.
0: It's certainly hard to believe they sold all this product knowing it was infected.
3: Join me as I trace it from the veins of innocent people back to a notorious American prison in The Telegraph's latest podcast. It's Bed of Lies series two with me, Cara McGugan. A true story of greed, betrayal and deception and it ends with a death sentence.
1: In essence, they put money over life.
3: Search Bed of Lies wherever you're listening to this.
1: Now, Alison, our latest guest on the Planet Normal rocket, the last of this year, is Madeleine Grant. We've had several excellent Telegraph colleagues join us on our voyage in recent months. We've had Phil Johnson, of course. We've had Tim Stanley. We've had Ben Wright, who helped us with some business and economic analysis. And it's great to have Madeleine Grant with us. You are, of course, Mads, the parliamentary sketch writer for the Telegraph, as well as being a distinguished presence on our comment pages for quite a while now and I guess what I wanted to ask you is what was it like up close and personal during those Tory rebellions because Alison and I we were peering from outside parliament (laughs) Mm -hmm. our noses pressed up to the glass.
2: Well the trouble with the new normal is that it's often very hard to tell what is going on, because everyone is wearing a mask. It's hard to work out who is conspiring with whom and who is speaking up in the chamber and also who is heckling. It makes sketch writing quite difficult because you can't attribute the heckle to the right person. So because of the new normal, unfortunately, I I wouldn't say that I have been as at the coalface as I perhaps would like to have been.
0: Mads, it's quite amazing to think that we've just passed the anniversary of Boris's fantastic election victory. When you're looking at him now in, in, in the Commons, are you seeing a prime minister in big trouble?
2: Yes, I think so, definitely. I mean, I, you sense that what were once things that Boris's supporters really liked about him, his humour, um, his his flippancy, the fact that he is unlike many other politicians, when you hear him speak. All of these things, which might have been charming under normal circumstances, I think have really started to wear thin on a lot of us. And just the simple fact that the state of affairs in the Commons right now. Uh, I mean, no prime minister, particularly one with an 80 seat majority. It's quite embarrassing, really, to be in a position where you rely on your opposition in order to pass votes and to be, I guess, using the opposition to pass votes, which has so clearly anathema to what many, many rank-and-file Tories would support.
0: What's your theory about what's happened to him? Has he been kidnapped by Witty? What do you think?
2: Well, I, I don't know what's going on inside Number 10. I mean, it seems like it's, it's deeply chaotic, whatever it is. I think this is the problem. When you have someone like the PM is famously... He's quite, I'd say, having worked with him in the past, I used to edit his columns sometimes. Ah, he He will listen to what you say and often he'll take what you say and put it into his piece. I don't mean that in a kind of plagiarism way. I mean that he bounces ideas off people and he's quite responsive to those ideas. It's a bit like a sponge, you know, kind of soaks up what's around him. But with the departure of Dominic Cummings, it seems as if it's descended into a sort of court politics in which it depends sort of whose star is on the rise and who has the ear of the PM at any given time. And there doesn't seem to be a sort of unifying philosophy or strategy behind it. So it's got this sense of a kind of quite a rudderless sort of outfit, really.
1: It strikes me, Mads, that as journalists, we know sometimes we have off days and you can't always write your best column every week. There's other stuff going on. It strikes me that Boris Johnson's brought the habits of a jobbing newspaper columnist to running the world's fifth biggest economy. And I wondered to what extent you thought the famous Pepper Pig speech was important. Alison and I are old enough to remember 1983. You weren't even born, of course. But 1983 <laughs> was the year that Neil Kinnock fell over on a beach at Labour Party conference. and um, I think from that point, A lot of people in the country thought that bloke's never going to be prime minister because he's just fallen over on a beach on live television. And do you remember, Alison, his his wife, Glynis, had to sort of pick him up before the waves came to take him. (laughs) And then he tried to sort of laugh it off. It was absolutely hilarious, but devastating for political image makers. How bad do you think that speech was in terms of conveying the idea that the Prime Minister is basically winging it and not taking this enormous responsibility of being the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland seriously.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I was not alive for the famous Neil Kinnock <laughs> dip. <laughs> I think it was in Brighton, wasn't it? But it's, it's famous, isn't it? It's absolutely yeah. infamous. Although I think Neil Kinnock was in power for another nine years or something after that as head of the Labour Party. I mean, for me, the big cringe Neil Kinnock moment is the the Sheffield rally where he has the big victory lap before he then gets thrashed by John Major. Mm. But on the question about the Peppa Pig speech, I mean, it's, it's always hard to know, isn't it, at the time that you're... I didn't have to sketch that day. I think Tim sketched that one, not me. But on a day like that, you think, oh, it's just another speech. But it really does seem to be that that one has stuck in the public mindset. Apparently, it was mentioned a lot on the doorsteps of North Shropshire. And it might well be that we look back on that as some kind of particular low point or or kind of zenith. I suppose what what was worrying about that wasn't just that it was classic Boris with the jokes and the sort of bluster of his delivery. But it just it, it seemed to treat business people with a real lack of respect, not giving wasn't just that he was talking to them in childhood cliches, but he was not giving any prescription or certainty for business. It seemed to show a kind of a lack of appreciation of the problem that is facing it. And that's sort of what I was getting at earlier. And I said that things that might once have been charming and fun, particularly in a serious situation like we're in now, are just really starting to grate on a lot of people.
0: You wrote a really good column recently about the sort of power of the blob and nothing working. She
1: never says I've written a good column.
0: Well, she should. (laughs) Excuse me. Barely a week passes without me praising my co pilot. Regular
1: listeners know that's not true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Madeline did write a fantastic column about the blob. I would say that one of my hopes of Prime Minister Boris was that he would set about some of the sort of civil servants and and the NHS, which Liam and I have been finding fault with throughout the year. Is that a surprise to you? or, Or do you think he just
2: decided it was too hard? Yeah, I think it's a mixture of things. I mean, clearly, the pandemic was a big spanner in the works. But actually, I think a lot has to do with Dominic Cumming's departure from number 10, because he was so big on the need for institutional reform. And his departure, I think, has left a real vacuum in that sense, and just a general sense of stagnation that you just carry on as things are. And the trouble is that now the Prime Minister is in a position where a lot of the goodwill that he started with, that he might have translated into making these far-reaching reforms, is now pretty much depleted. And you really need to bring people with you. So I think that the political capital to make these changes is now, is now gone. It's really a case of treading water as opposed to striking out and doing something more groundbreaking. And that, I think, is going to future historians will look back on that as potentially a, a great missed opportunity. It certainly feels very disappointing to have, when you consider the situation of two years ago and today.
1: Mads, I wanted to ask you about the Labour Party You obviously spend a lot of time in the chamber looking at the opposition front bench as well. I wondered how if you thought Labour was more electable now than they were at the start of this year. Certain people are breaking through. Rachel Reeves has come to public prominence a bit more. Starmer's had a reshuffle. He's brought in some old stages uh, with a bit more name recognition like Yvette Cooper. Do you think the Tories should be worried about Labour becoming more electable as they go ahead in the polls?
2: Labour are definitely becoming more electable, but I think a lot of people have interpreted this sort of Tory implosion as a sign that Labour has its act together. And what I think we're seeing more of is the Tories are losing more than Labour is winning. They've certainly, yes, they have promoted. It was quite a sensible reshuffle because it put at the forefront people with a bit more charisma and presence. And part of the problem that Keir Starmer has or had was that he himself is a notably uncharismatic person. He's forgettable. They found that in previous by-elections there was a real problem of recognition. People didn't even know who the Labour leader was. So to compensate for that, he's put some of their sort of heavyweight-type people to the forefront. And I think that will help with getting the message out there. But I think that right now things are particularly bad for the Tories, but the position for Labour is not as, quite as rosy as people think. So, for example, in... North Shropshire, the Labour vote also collapsed as the Tories did. And in the Batley by election, really should have been a walk in the park for Labour, but they only managed to get a very slim majority. So I think that basically they need a much more commanding and a consistent polling lead heading into the next general election. And the situation in the next general election, the kind of constituency arithmetic doesn't particularly favour them. They need to get a bigger swing than even. Tony Blair was managing with any confidence and Scotland is now in SNP hands and also the boundary review will favour the Tories. So there's, there's a lot of potential spanners in the works coming for Labour and I think it's a mistake to extrapolate too much from what we're currently seeing in the polls.
0: We were just talking, Liam and I, Mads, about the possibility that Boris will go back to Parliament next week. I've heard that the 28th is being a date for potential new lockdown measures. How would you see that playing out with the backbenchers and and even with ministers?
2: Well, I mean... I think it would be very, very unpopular. And we already can see the Prime Minister being boxed in on all sides. He doesn't have a majority in cabinet for these sorts of measures. And the parliamentary rebellion that happened last week, that was not just a very big backbench rebellion. But interestingly, the MPs who were voting against it, against vaccine passports, were drawn from all sides of the party. And they they were voting against it for a, a range of different reasons. So I think that Further measures will be, there's no kind of guaranteed consensus in the Tory party anymore, and I think they have to make a really firm case with Grounded in Data if they are to do that, or else they'll risk the humiliation of having to, once again, walk through the eye corridor with the Labour Party.
0: So, Madeline Grant, with your other hat on, you're one of the world's great James Bond experts. <laughs> <laughs> We'll we'll, we'll we'll draw a veil over the recent one, which I think you and I shared the same views about the ending, uh, Daniel Craig's departure. But if if Planet Normal listeners are going to watch one James Bond this Christmas, which one should it be?
2: Oh, that's such a good question. And I knew that you would agree with me when I asked Alison. It's totally, such a sound yes. and sensible woman. I would say the best one to watch over Christmas. I mean... I couldn't pick a favourite Bond. It's like my children. I couldn't, not that I have children, (laughs) but if I did, it would be similar. I couldn't choose between them. But I would say Goldeneye is a perfect Christmas one because it's quite jolly. Mm -hmm. I love Casino Royale, but it ends on a massive downer with love of his life drowning in Venice. So I think Goldeneye is the perfect mixture of being a really good Bond film, but also one with lots of fun and gadgets and it's not trying to be all kind of grown up and deep and mysterious and dark like the, the Daniel Craig. And it's just all family fun, I would say.
0: Any thoughts on the next James Bond?
2: Oh, well, to be honest, I'm that- not available. I'm
0: not available. <laughs> oh no! Are you not? Are you not available? Well, I'm doing this podcast
1: with you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it looks so lovely in those budgie smugglers, though, wouldn't
2: you? Liam Halligan will return. <laughs> <laughs> well, next Bond. What well, to be honest, um, after the last Bond, I just I feel like they've already killed Bond, you know, that they made him behave in a way that was totally anathema to his personality. So I suspect that unless they go back to the books, back to the, the core of what Bond is, then I'm not even sure that the next one will be recognisably Bond. And Barbara Broccoli has been saying that she thinks it's time for a non-binary Bond and a, oh. a female Bond. And, and you just think, well, you know, last time there were rumours that James Bond was, spoiler warning, um, going to have a child. And everyone said, oh no, they wouldn't dare do that. And then of course they did. So basically, if if we end up with anything that isn't Jane Bond or non binary Bond, then I'll be pleasantly surprised.
0: Yes, I think James Bond assembles an Ikea nappy changing table is really. I don't think Ian Fleming would be choking on his cheroot, wouldn't he?
1: What would M say? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, amazing. Matt, it's been great to talk to you. Great to have you on the planet normal rocket with us. It's good to see you making such a success of your role as parliamentary sketch writer we'll put a link to your writing in the show notes to this episode and happy christmas and happy new year to you from all planet normal listeners and myself and alice
2: thank you darling thank you so much thank you oh thank you and thank you all the planet normal listeners for a fantastic year of support Before we go to our list of emails
0: this week, Liam, I, I heard something which really made me laugh, and I and think of you with the true Irish humour. Something I think Planet Normal listeners will particularly enjoy, given my own obsessions. This is the Omicron horse race from the Ian Dempsey Breakfast Show on Irish radio station Today FM, commentated by Mario
4: Rosenstock. They're off in the Christmas COVID handicap hurdle. And first to show is Omicron Lad. Omicron Lad being closely followed by the booster. The booster. Omicron Lad. In a bit of an early race here with each other, the booster and Omicron Lad. Antigen test trying to get in there. Antigen test. Omicron Lad, the booster. Track and trace trying to get a look in, but he looks to be struggling early doors, I'm afraid. Track and trace. Antigen test on the outside here comes HEPA filters HEPA filters uh, being followed by the booster Omicron lad Omicron lad the booster Omicron lad not giving an inch to the booster HEPA filters here comes New Year's Eve absolutely (laughs) cruising on the outside everybody talking about this one New Year's Eve looking confident and assured the booster Omicron lad HEPA filters, track and trace is knackered. He's gone. New Year's Eve is coming fast. Sudden spike sudden spike appears out of nowhere sudden spike the big danger new year's eve the booster plugging away gamely with omicron lad new year's eve sudden spike here comes leave them kids alone leave them kids alone (laughs) sudden spike new year's eve and a late challenge from it's only a cold it's only a cold sudden spike leave them kids alone the booster Fourth dose Nobody saw this one coming. Four dose out of nowhere. It's only a cold. Four dose, it's only a cold. Leave that kids alone. Fourth dose, it's only a cold. I oh, had no idea how they're going to sort this one out, to be honest with you. They all crossed the line together. New Year's Eve just crossing the line now, absolutely spent. And track and trace is still running, would you believe?
1: I love it. Fourth dose at the end. I'll tell you what that reminded me of. That reminded me a lot of Michael O'Hare, Alison. I don't know if you know who Michael O'Hare is for a lot of Irish people. He's a very famous uh, commentator on, on on Gaelic sport, but also on horse racing and well known to British listeners. You'll definitely recognise his voice. He is Ireland's equivalent of Peter O'Sullivan, the great horse racing commentator, of course, and... Really wonderful idea by the guys on uh, Today FM and very, very funny. <laughs> fourth dose! Fourth dose! It's
0: only a cold! It's only a cold! <laughs> sudden spike! Sudden spike! <laughs> yeah, let's go with emails. Come on. Now on to our emails. We had a fantastic festive flurry of emails this week. If you feel like joining in the conversation, please email Normal at telegraph.co.uk. Here's one from Andy. I've been an avid listener to Planet Normal in order to retain sanity in what has been a bleak period, and I look forward to each blast-off every Thursday for my sliver of light amongst the madness. As a father of three young children, I remain fortunate that my wife and I have remained healthy and well. We missed milestone birthdays, so what? We were unable to see friends and family for months on end, living in our own bubble, having Zoom family catch-ups, a poor substitute. We had to worry as family members were sick, were hospitalised, recovered, and the load was placed on siblings to carry the burden. But most egregious to me is the impact on my children, Night terrors, my daughter fearing going back to school after remote learning because she was, quote, scared that her friends would forget her. The tears when we took the kids out on our one-hour government-issued exercise and had to walk past the shackled, empty playgrounds. Yet at the same time, Johnson Hancock et al. were sat drinking wine in a group of 17, My anger is not so much the Downing Street parties, excessive and grating as they are. It's the knowledge that Boris and his cronies hosted such parties because they knew they were not at threat from the virus. As a result, they didn't have to live in the circumstances in which the rest of us were imprisoned. We expected better from the government. We hoped for a strong opposition to hold government to account, to see the data they see and review the decisions or call for more data and for the media to hold all to high standards. No more can this government threaten its state of fear because I am not scared. I'm just sad that my kids lost a year of their education I'm sad that they lost time with family and friends, of grandparents, hugs and kisses. I'm sad that I, as their daddy, couldn't keep them away from the fear. I couldn't tell them it's all going to be okay. That is, after all, the essence of what a daddy is supposed to be. This conservative government took that away from me and I deeply resent it. Finally, I'm sad that my kids and their kids are going to pay over and over emotionally and financially for what has happened. Thank you both for all the light that you have brought, especially in the darkest times. Poignantly, on the winter solstice, I feel that our darkest days are passing. The 100 Tory rebels, Fraser Nelson's sage conversation, Lord Frost's principal departure and the backbone we now see in the cabinet. Even Kay Burley has started challenging the data. It seems that rocket ship is taking on board passengers at an altogether delightful rate. Co-pilots, I wish you a very Merry Christmas. Thanks again for all your support and keep up. The good work, Andy. Great email from Andy. And this is from Fiona. Dear Alison and Liam, wishing you both a very happy Christmas with grateful thanks for your hard work in keeping planet normal going. With all the sanity and cheer it has brought to so many in dark times. If only our leaders had an ounce of your genuine humanity, concern and kindness towards so many. I hope you take a rest and a break over Christmas so you're ready to take up the fight again in the new year. And Tim says, For Christmas, we would like as a present the old Boris, who so many of us voted for in 2019. A good example of actually wanting the ghost of Christmas past. His mandate is in very serious danger of being frittered away. Optimism, global Britain, a new dynamic approach and much more. Where has it all gone and why? Season's greetings to you both.
1: This is one from Sarah. Dear co-pilots, thanks for providing me with laughter, tears and reason this year. You've interviewed some inspirational people and strengthened by them and both of you. I have found my voice. I've started writing to express my feelings about this whole awful lockdown situation and for the first time since the poll tax I joined a demonstration. Some 500 of us marched through Bournemouth last Saturday to the bemusement of some Christmas shoppers. We were there for many and varied reasons. It was peaceful if a little noisy. The policing was light touch and the press coverage was even lighter. My reasons for going on the march are not easily summarised but I wrote a short article after I'd attended. Why am I here? I'm here, Sarah writes, for the children whose lives may be permanently marred by the mask, the disrupted schooling, the exposure to abuse and the fear that's been instilled in them. The babies with impaired development because they've not been in contact with other people and learned to read faces. I'm here for the working classes, the folk who have continued to work while others have cosied up on their sofa with their laptops The refuse collectors, the shop workers, the delivery drivers, the care home workers, the engineers that have kept electricity, gas and water flowing. Ordinary people working in extraordinary circumstances. I'm here for the 50,000 plus undiagnosed cancers and the people waiting for much needed surgery. For all the parents stuck at home educating their children in small flats while trying to hold down jobs. I'm here for all the parents with special needs kids who have cared for them when they should have had some relief by sending them to school. The same special needs children whose mental and physical well being has deteriorated from a lack of social and physical therapy and stimulation. I'm here for the women who've had to go through labour and sometimes birth alone or receive heartbreaking news about their unborn children as they've intended scans all alone. I'm here for those that took their own lives as they couldn't bear the loneliness and isolation. For those denied the right to communal worship, taking solace and comfort with others. I'm here for those who spent last Christmas alone or watched their relatives' last moments on a mobile phone whilst Whitehall partied. For the men, women and children forced to stay inside with their abusers. For the elderly in care homes confused by the absence of family and friends that once visited them. I'm here for the people who've lost their jobs, for businesses that have closed and may still close, families and lives that may never recover. I'm here for the students whose higher education dream turned into a dystopia of Zoom lectures and confinement to residence halls. I'm here for all the single men whose pint in the pub was their lifeline. For many, the only time in the day they had conversation and company. And I'm here because I care about my freedom, your freedom, and that of the whole human race. I'm here, Sarah writes, because I'm angry, human, and because I care.
0: Gosh, fantastic email from Sarah. And here's one of the lovely reviews that's been written for us on Apple iTunes Halligan. Not Surely not all written by members of the Halligan diaspora. (laughs) This one says, from Sad For Our Nation, I am so impressed with the contact of this podcast. I am not normally a fan of The Telegraph. So when I was pointed in the direction of this podcast, I was somewhat unsure as to what rubbish I might hear. But no, I was very pleasantly surprised to hear the voice of reason. Well, that's, that's me. That's me.
1: Thank you. Keep telling yourself what? that, Alison. You'll be all right. <laughs> Gemma says, I've been listening to Planet Normal without fail since the first lockdown. Alison and Liam, you've been a great double act, intelligent, informed, caring. You've got mountains of common sense and are very entertaining You should be running the country without a doubt. It's so (laughs) nice to know there are sensible, decent people out there. Thank you for making my Thursdays always something to look forward to and for some much needed sanity. Some absolutely fabulous emails as ever, Alison. We're so lucky that our Planet Normal listeners email us. A lot of you say that we're a source of sanity for you, well, you collectively are definitely a source of sanity. Well, for Alison anyway. And, and, and me as well, I suppose. It has been a really difficult year, hasn't it, Alison? We've had lots to get angry about, but we try always, don't we, to see through the gloom and to make sure that we and our listeners have a bit of a laugh. For a while, your line was, I don't need to know what podcast is. I am one.
0: <laughs> Just we in podcast. This is going to surprise you, Halligan, but I do get quite tetchy when there isn't enough hot water at Pearson Towers. It's a bit like that scene in Chernobyl when the people in the control room
1: (laughs) (laughs) realise. Emergency. That was when I used to tease you that you had a secret crush on Emmanuel Macron. How's that going?
0: (laughs) I'm younger than Mrs Macron, mate, I tell you. There's nothing immoral about having gout, Liam Halligan. were you Henry VIII or something? Is this some kind of I, period I, drama? I know. <laughs> you just wanted to wear a bodice, didn't you, that you could rip off? When I went to the GP and he uttered the dreaded G word, I thought, what am I in the Pickwick papers? Hero of the week, Mr. Rod Humphreys step forward, the pub landlord True. of the... Get ra- out of
1: my pub! Get out of my Get out pub! Of my Get out pub. of my pub! <laughs> Always <laughs> dignified, even when launching. A a column so powerful that the Prime Minister was shaking in his boots. Matt, Matt, she's gone into one. I'm afraid you have to go. Yes. She's gone completely nuts. Yes.
0: Your co-pilot is the winner of the Edgar Wallace Trophy for writing of the highest quality, Alison Pearson. Is that the Wallace and Gromit Trophy? (laughs) It is the Wallace and Gromit. Cheese, Gromit. Cracking prose, Gromit.
1: Apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. And while we're talking about anagrams of Omicron, let me just point out that Omicron B rearranged spells no crimbo. I've done something very, very
0: unusual. Do you want to know what I've done? Go on. I read the Halligan brain tastic column on energy in the Sunday Telegraph. <sighs> I mean, you know, the lengths I will go to for this podcast. <laughs>
1: My column's always worth reading, Alison, whether it's on... Energy policy, housing, quantitative easing, (laughs) or other things you don't understand.
0: Nora Batty's knicker elastic (laughs) is quantitative easing. You know, even Rishi Sunak knows that. Wasn't it lovely to be reminded
1: of those, all the chuckles we've had, honestly? But just as the readers are grateful for Planet Normal, Alison, we're Um, really, really grateful for our readers and our listeners. It's been a huge connection in our lives, hasn't it, over the last 81 episodes? It's
0: been a joy and a constant really. We had even had lovely Lionel Shriver praising us in The Spectator this week for being jocular, jocular. So
1: um God knows someone's got to be, haven't they, really? And that's it from Planet Normal for another week and for another year as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's my turn. Well, I think it has to be Sarah who went on that demonstration in Bournemouth and wrote a very, very powerful poem if you like trying to convey her motivations for going on a demonstration
0: well I think in the new year if they're going to keep the schools closed I'm going to be handcuffing myself to some railings Halligan you're gonna you're gonna to have to bring snacks and a catheter I think <laughs> If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It it does help others to find us. And, of course, in the new year, I'll be praising Halligan's columns on an almost minute by minute basis. So just do keep tuned in.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do keep emailing us. As previously advertised, this is our last voyage in the Planet Normal rocket this year. Alison and I and our fabulous, hard-working Planet Normal crewmates will be taking a break ahead of our next blast-off, which is on Thursday, the 6th of January. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to that team, Isabel Bouchard, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampitt, to our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next year, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It's goodbye from me. And it's happy Christmas
0: from me and from him.